Brothers and sisters, friends, I see some enemies. Hey guys, it's Kevin, and you're listening to Connecting the Dots. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope this episode finds you at peace and with a strong mind and healthy body, man. Today we're going to be looking at an old book called The Other America by Michael Harrington. We should probably take note right now that this is a very, very old book. I believe it was initially published in 1962, so that was almost 60 years ago. Uh, Overall, out of the entire span of this podcast, I believe it is probably one of the oldest books that we've we've ever covered. Uh, but because this book was published such a long time ago, a lot of the specific statistics and figures have changed. A lot of policies have changed. And obviously the world is not the same right now as it was in 1962. That's okay though. We're not, we're not covering this book to quibble and scrutinize over statistics. That's for myopic people. It is myopic to assume that statistics are a reflection of the world and to believe that we should direct ourselves based off of those limited statistics. This book simply informs readers of the intolerable presence of poverty in America, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, the other America. But since this book is, yes, it's very old, I'm only going to extract the information and concepts and history that are still applicable from it, because as we know, the world is dramatically different from uh, the time that this book was initially published. But just because it's an old book does not mean it's irrelevant, though. Not at all. This book actually really helps to illuminate the harshness of poverty, the personal effects that it has on people, the contradictions of America and our inaction, among lots of other great topics and insights. Uh, Overall, it's a super light and a super quick read. It's not dense at all, but it's very informative. I think it's meant to tap into your indignation more than anything. I think this book is meant to tap into your humanity and your outrage over such injustices. But this book holds a lot of insight, a lot of information and guidance, but I'm, I'm really excited for this one, guys. So with all that said, let's just get into it. Okay, r- right out the gate, the author says very clearly that America has the highest mass standard of living in the world, and we are celebrated for that. I don't know how we're celebrating that is, honestly. Yes, we are very blessed to have so much uh, material wealth around us. But that also means that it's hardest for the most struggling members of our nation to keep up. I mean, we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world in history. So our country's poor people, the people of the other America, they are not impoverished the same way people in third world countries are. Uh, To put things into perspective, our middle class could actually pass as the upper classes in other places in the world. But this isn't a comparison of poverty and anyone that chooses to take that route uh, is not sincere to the struggling people of the world. Not just here at home, but everywhere. And, and it's just, it kind of defeats the purpose. What are we doing? Trying to compare scars, trying to compare traumas and despair? What is that? How does that help anyone? That's not the point. Uh, regardless, it does say something about ourselves, though, and our country. Being the richest, being, being the most powerful, with the most resourceful people. And yet, we still condemn our own people to lives of suffering and trauma and despair. With all of our resources, all of our knowledge, all of our wealth, and after all this fucking time, we still have not taken solidified mass action towards making poverty history. Truth be told, 
Poverty may never be fully abolished, just like racism may never be fully eradicated. There may always be legacies um, or some uh, remnants of, uh, of these issues. But that doesn't, that doesn't take away our responsibility to ensure the quality of life in this nation and justice and equality. In addition to that, we cannot allow the potential for profit and private interests or militarization and imperialism to overcome our dedication to social responsibility. Just because these issues may never be fully abolished, maybe it's ideological to think that they, that they will, it doesn't mean that we can't fucking try. It doesn't mean that we can't give our all into doing it, into, into contributing. America likes to delude itself with happy reports on the, on the state of the nation, on the state of the country. We like to think we're the best in the world without acknowledging the suffering of our most impoverished people. The author intelligently says that it is beauty and myths that are the mask of poverty. We've talked about both of these elements throughout the podcast, all the beauty and the polish that is propped up to hide our cruelty and the cruelty of the system and the myths that are upheld to maintain any illusions or to maintain the status quo. But you know what, before we, before we go any further, let's make sure we discuss who composes uh, the other America to ensure that we're all on the same page. These are not faceless people. They're human beings. They're not numbers. They're not statistics. They're not a class or a mass or a lump of people. They're human beings. They are, they're humans. They're people. People you know. People you've seen. Now, the author says that the other America consists of a bunch of different kinds of people. I'm not talking about specific races or ethnicities or anything specific in that regard. The other America is composed of the elderly, minorities, uh, unskilled workers, the uneducated, the migrant farmers, alcoholics, uh, and others of the economic underworld. The author also says that every major U.S. city has an, has an economic underworld. The economic underworld is made up uh, from hidden people. Who, who labor and work at ridiculously low wages. You, you know these people. You see them every day if you don't know them personally. The economic underworld consists of busboys, uh, dishwashers, hotel employees, sweatshop workers, janitors, etc. I'd even add people like the elote man, the housemaids, the, the men and women who cut lawns, the guys who sell bootleg gear and t-shirts outside of concerts, the immigrant workers, the, the workers that are inside the meat packaging plants that we discussed in Fast Food Nation. All of these people make up the economic underworld. They work hard with what they can, and they reap almost no benefits. They accumulate little to no wealth, and they have no political voice. In other words, the other America is filled with socially and politically invisible people, the voiceless, the powerless. They are the most disenfranchised and the furthest away from positions of power and influence. This actually ties back to a recent episode that we, we just covered, uh, Because We Say So. Go back and hear what that author had to say about what he called unpeople. Okay. But the other America isn't, isn't just composed of a handful of people, even if you don't see them often, depending on where you live. I'm not talking about hundreds or thousands of people. I'm talking about millions. The other America doesn't consist of just the homeless, just the most desolate. It's those that live paycheck to paycheck, that live under or even above the poverty line. It's not just the middle age and the young, but the elders, the seniors. It's not just the parents and men and women. It's their kids, too. This isn't some small fraction of the country when the numbers get well into the millions. These are huge masses of people who have been reduced to invisibility or just pushed aside, just politically powerless. 
People don't make eye contact with them. They won't look too long. They won't talk to them. They won't socialize with them. In fact, people go out of their way to avoid looking at the most impoverished. You know what? I actually have a, actually have a personal story that might help uh, exemplify this. I used to work at, at this park in uh, Altadena, California. Now, the neighborhood around the park was pretty well off. The houses were nice. The area was quaint. It was very peaceful. The houses were big and pretty. It was a great location. It was right by the mountains and had a, a great view, actually. The park itself was actually also pretty damn big. It was very pretty. Plenty of space all around. Like n- Nice facilities. A lot of stuff going for the community members. Now, I started noticing when I would come into work in the mornings that there was a homeless woman who started to camp out around the park. Uh, she was close to the sidewalk, to be specific. So she wasn't really inside the park. She wasn't in the playground or in the restrooms or anything. She was just really on the edge. Uh, she didn't bother anyone. She was super isolated. Now, I believe that the protocol for the staff, which was me, when they see uh, homeless people in the park, you're supposed to call the sheriffs or uh, the sheriffs get some other organization or some other people out there to try and talk and... Uh, I guess, shelter the homeless. I, I don't know. Personally, I, I wasn't going to be doing any of that shit. I, I wasn't about to go out of my way to bother this woman for simply existing in my presence. So I, I just let her be. I just let her be. Um, unfortunately, though, other people did not share my sentiment or my mentality. So one morning, I'm um, in the office, early alone, uh, and this older woman shows up, and she's probably in her 50s, possibly 60s. Uh, she knocks on the door. I greet her. After conversing with her for just a few moments, I could tell that this was an insolent woman. She was livid at like 9 or 8 in the morning, but she wouldn't specify why. Uh, of course, as most entitled people do, she was taking her anger and her frustration out on me over something, but she wouldn't tell me what it was. So she kept asking for a manager. I said, there's not one here, but I'm here. In the end, she ended up leaving after doing absolutely nothing except spreading her anger and toxicity, but she never shared what her issue was or what I could help her with. I found out later, when the lady finally got a hold of a manager, that she was outraged that we allowed the homeless woman to stay in the park premises for so long. So she was asking around to get her removed. Um, This means that this woman was sitting with her anger and her resentment for a while. And it bothered her so damn much that she went out of her way to get a hold of a manager so she could voice that outrage. The very same day, though, after the first lady left, a couple hours later, I get a phone call in the office. It's from another woman, a community member. She says she lives nearby, she's at the park all the time, blah, blah, blah. But she also asked me what is being done about the homeless lady living in a tent off in the corner. She also mentioned something about the homeless woman that I could not forget even if I tried. While she was sharing and voicing her concern about the woman, she described her as, quote, an eyesore on the community. See, this is the kind of bullshit that I'm talking about. When she said some shit like that, I wanted to just fucking throw the phone. Like, I, you're talking to the wrong person, homegirl. Like, this is not this is not the kind of shit that I really want to be hearing right now. And I'm really not about to be the one to, to help you with this shit. I don't share your sentiment. I don't share your mentality. But these community members, they were upset. They were bothered by this homeless woman for simply existing in their presence. They were so upset that they went out of their way to ensure that she was removed. They called, they complained, they tracked down managers, they visited me in person simply to get this woman out of their sight. Obviously, as I said, I was not about to contribute to any of that, but check this out. I never took it upon myself to help uproot this woman. I never snitched. I never relayed any messages from the community members. So the homeless woman didn't leave for a little while. 
Um, in addition, I think she had been there for a few days, maybe a week or something. But when all this was happening, it was an election year, and it was in the summer. So in the summer, a woman named Catherine Barger, she's a member of L.A. County's Board of Supervisors, you can look her up, uh, she was going to make a political ad at that very same park that I was covering. Now when Catherine Barger decided to make her little commercial, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this homeless woman was gone, disappeared, I never saw her again. I came into work, I knew it was the day of the commercial shooting, and she was nowhere to be seen. This is not uncommon, though. Homeless people are often swept away and kicked out when a political figure decides to grace us with their presence, honestly. I think this personal example epitomizes how people are offended by the poor. Their very presence, their very existence will offend people, evidently. Now, do I believe that the two women or community members who I talked to that day were evil? Do I think they're despicable people? No, not necessarily. I think they reflect most Americans. Selfish ignorant, and entitled. Now, I'm sure that these two women were not evil. In fact, I'm sure they both make their church donations. I'm sure they flip a couple of bucks to a homeless person when they can. I'm sure they preach about the betterment of society. I wouldn't be surprised if I saw them at um, the Black Lives Matter protest that very same, at that very same park a couple months later. I'm sure they donate to charity. I'm sure they do all this good shit. But charity is not empathy. Good intentions are not a substitute for genuine empathy. Prayers and religion and going to church don't innately make someone more understanding or more empathetic. In other words, people want to help until it becomes inconvenient for them. It was inconvenient for these community members to have one homeless woman in their neighborhood, and they were very vocal about that. So I have to be very vocal about them as well. They exemplify the disdain that middle-class America holds towards the poor, and unfortunately, they exemplify us at our worst. It's a tragedy when those that could actually make a difference for the poor don't through their ignorance and their moral superiority. These women had money. I mean, I know that because I, I worked in their community. What did they do? What did they do to help this person? They helped themselves by saying, get rid of her, Kev. Get rid of her, park people. You want to help the poor and the homeless, but you don't want them building an affordable housing complex in your city? You want to help the poor and the homeless people? And you think you do when you flip them five or ten bucks, but you don't want them to sleep in the park by your house? Okay, I see. What the middle class fails to realize, though, is that a good many of them, especially those in the lower middle class, are just one accident, one illness, one termination, one recession, one tragedy away from poverty, from struggling, or from financial instability. The system is built more like a house of cards than it is a fortress. And economic insecurity is an issue that most people in the country face. So don't get too comfy, motherfucker. The middle class is shrinking as the economy becomes more polarized and wealth disparities increase. So the middle class should be focusing on the genuine upliftment of the poor and providing safety nets because it will uplift them as well. But to raise your nose to poverty, th there's no room on the journey forward for people like that. But to a lot of people... Those who receive welfare are seen as a burden for the working man. This infuriates me. Someone is outraged that their tax dollars are going to the neediest and the most deprived people in society. Yet, those very same people don't say shit when their tax dollars are utilized to bail out corporations and banks for their irresponsibility. Or when their tax dollars provide 50% of the city budget to policing. Or when their tax dollars are utilized to maintain the empire with a $700 billion military budget yearly and 800 military bases worldwide. So all that shit is cool though, right? 
You just draw the line at the enrichment of the poor? Got it. This type of mindset is diametrical to everything we talk about on here. And I'll spit on that shit if I see it. American individualism is toxicity thriving. In fact, according to the book, the poor are actually being undercompensated for their humiliations that the government, that the economy, and capitalists are partly contributing to, if not responsible for, in addition to broken promises. In every crucial arena regarding food, housing, and education, the government provides its worst-off citizens with only a percentage of what they need. The money is there for wars, is there for guns, is there for military gear, it's there to subsidize corporations and to invest in capital, but the money vanishes when it comes to uplifting and investing in the poor. This is much more outrageous to me. But people want to blame the poor. Silly. In fact, the upliftment of the poor should have been handled a very long time ago. So if you want to be pissed at someone, turn your eyes upon the government instead of the most disenfranchised. In 1949, the United States government promised every citizen adequate housing with the Housing Act of 1949. They were supposed to construct 800,000 units of low-cost housing by 1955. I guess we're still waiting for them to make good on that promise. Other people view the poor as lazy, as complacent, unwilling to progress in society, and that they're comfortable living in poverty because they can get free money or unemployment money or whatever. Personally, I've never seen this. Uh, I'm not going to lie and say, I'm sure there are some people out there who do share that practice, who do take advantage. Not stupid. Personally, though, I have never fucking seen this. But I think for the most part, these are more just stereotypes and myths. In reality, though, the, the poor simply cannot keep up with the rising standard of living. In fact, a lot of middle-class people are struggling to keep up. So how are the poor supposed to do it? In fact, jobs with high productivity and jobs that are con connected to technology, these things end up sidelining the poor. They don't possess the skills or the experience or the education to work in certain sectors of the economy. And this naturally isolates them from better opportunities. How is that their fault? When high-quality education is not available to everyone, this is commonplace. Certain people will be left in the dust. The author says that as a society becomes more technological, more skilled, those who learn to work the new equipment, those that excel at technology, those who get an education, they can move up, yes. Those who miss out at the very start find themselves at a new disadvantage. But this is just a normal function of capitalism. As production and efficiency are launched upward through technology, some old jobs become obsolete. This is expected. For example, look at cashiers. They're being replaced with uh, self-checkout and do-it-yourself machines. The point is, the revolution and advancement of technology leaves a lot of people behind. And this condemns them to poverty and uselessness. As there's no longer you know, much need for them in the workforce based off of their limited skill level or education. Either way, the rise of automation and technology has brought a lot of problems to the people of the other America. For the middle class and upper classes, this is a convenience for them. For the poor, it is the opposite. It is them being reduced to yesterday's commodity. So in a way, technology is kind of their enemy. It makes certain people obsolete. This isn't to say technology is evil or anything, but it does hurt some people in this way, and that is worth putting into perspective. Okay. Let's switch over a bit to talk about actual members of the Other America. I wanted to share all that previous information to give a clear example of how normal middle-class Americans easily and sometimes unwittingly 
contribute to issues related to poverty. And I, w I also wanted to address some of the myths related to poverty as well. But right now we have an opportunity to discuss a group of people in American society who often aren't given enough attention as a minority. Talking about the old, the age, the elders. In America, we are obsessed with youth. We, we, we ignore age. We ignore uh, getting old. We perfected this, actually. We have 50-year-old celebrities who still look 35 attempting to postpone the natural occurrence of aging, of getting older. Because deep down, we know in some way what happens when we age, when we get older. We're dismissed, sometimes forgotten. I think a lot of people fear this, honestly. People have this abstract fear of getting older. They might not be able to specify why, but this could be a reason. In this country, for older people belonging to the other America, to the working class, or even the lower middle classes, their declining years are often without dignity, without respect, without compassion. Older people now have to work well into their 60s to be able to sustain themselves. Look, if you are 60 plus, you should be chilling, bro. You should not be struggling to pay your bills. If, if these older people don't work, or sometimes even if they do, our seniors sometimes have to go back and live with their kids again for shelter, for care, for treatment, or just out of general necessity. This is kind of similar to how, how so many young adults in their late 20s and 30s still have to live at home with their parents as well. It's more, it's more out of necessity rather than choice or culture. But this deprives people of true independence when you have to continuously rely on your parents or, or your children for sustainability or support. It can even be degrading to people. This can also lead to some intense problems or conflicts within the family as well. Think about it. You have working parents who need to support themselves, their kids, their pets, their homes, and now their parents. Sometimes it's their parents, sometimes it's their in-laws, but I'm sure you can imagine how this might not be the smoothest ship to ride. This is how it affects people on an individual, on an individual level. Um, we're talking about this macro issue, but these macro issues do affect you. They do affect uh, individuals and families and people. We've talked about this also last year, I believe, um, in the Nordic theory of everything. This, this, this way of living creates a society of interdependent people rather than thriving independent people. 60-year-olds should not be having to move back in with their kids, and 30-year-olds shouldn't be having to move back in with their parents. We need to create a society that can stabilize this issue. This phenomenon isn't a reflection of the failure of these people. I think it's a reflection of the harshness of our economy and our lack of general safety nets. How can you sustain yourself with $7 an hour federally? Shit, how can you sustain yourself with $15 an hour? You can get a degree, you can graduate with honors, you can get your awards, and they still want to pay you the minimum when you're done. You can serve in the military, you can raise a family, you can grow some skills, and they still want to pay you the minimum. The economy is not centered around basic human needs, and the impoverished elders of this country exemplify this. Currently, there are more aging people in this country than ever before. And the author makes the excellent point that only a nation of abundance, only a nation of wealth and advanced technology and medicine could be capable of increasing the number of older people. You're fucking lucky if you get to be old someday. Only your youth tells you otherwise. But the impoverished elders of this country, because of their age, they also generally need more medical attention than other people, than anyone else, actually. Many of them living with chronic diseases, persistent health issues, and many of them have lived their entire lives ill. Some of them have been poor their entire lives. Those who have been poor their whole life are usually sicker, if you didn't know that. The aged people of the other America 
usually become bedridden. They have to live the remainder of their, their lives inside due to the severity of their illnesses. Imagine that. Imagine living your, your golden years after enduring a life of poverty and struggle and trauma and despair inside and alone and socially isolated. The old also are not the most popular people on the block. They're dismissed and overlooked often, so yes, they are socially isolated. We, as a culture, need to start questioning why we treat old people like this. We don't value age in this country. We value beauty and youth. Tell me how it is in other parts of the world, but over here, the aged are among the most dismissed, the most overlooked. Many of our elders fought in our wars. They birthed future generations and then they raised them. They participated in the economy and then they served their communities and yet we deny them the decency of healthcare. If we were civilized people, we would provide not just the age, but the poor, the sick, the handicapped, and everyone else the very best healthcare that this country has to offer. Medical attention that's provided at clinics and nursing homes are often inferior. No offense, if you work in that field, it's very commendable. Uh, but it's, it's not the best that we have to offer our seniors. If you really want to help the age poor, then we need to get radical in our solutions. Free, nationalized, or universal health care will not only alleviate the inevitable financial expenses that come with age and, and sickness, but it could also help prevent chronic or persistent health issues if they were treated from the start, from youth, from midlife. You won't need so much medical attention, hopefully, when you're older, if you've been treated and cared for your entire life. Not only does this alleviate the financial problems, but it helps treat the health issues as well. If you want to be a nurse, or a doctor, or a social worker, or a caregiver for the age, if you want to work with old people, or you just value the elders in your community, then advocate and fight for universal health care so we can treat them with a little bit more respect, a little bit more dignity. In addition to that, we should fight and advocate for free public education and higher education so you and people like you can get the training, the education, and the knowledge that you're going to need to work with that community. We limit our potential for change and helping people when we don't allow them to live healthy lives or when we deprive them from the education necessary to apply themselves. Imagine all the healing that could take place with so many more people stepping up to be doctors and nurses and social workers and rehab therapists and counselors if they had the education or the access to education and the opportunity. I'm not saying everyone would, but people could. But don't tell me with hard work it's possible. Don't tell me there's no barriers. Don't tell me that shit. Because it's not possible for many, many people. If that was the case, then the other America would be a lot smaller, right? Unaffordable tuition does not encourage people to go to school. Debt does not encourage people to go to school. Applying for scholarships and relying on luck and random charity does not encourage people to go to school. In addition to, to healthcare and education, we need to change how we perceive and treat old people in this country and relinquish our obsession and adoration for only youth, only beauty. Beauty is temporary. Wisdom is earned, man. One of the few things, despite all of our differences, that all of us have in common is that we age every single person. You are blessed if you get to be an elder, if you get to 60, if you get to be a grandparent. You are lucky. Because I know a lot of people that never got there. In typical American fashion, we want to preoccupy ourselves with youth and beauty and giving all our attention and adoration to that at the expense of a whole demographic or population, meaning the aged. Because age comes for all of us, if you're lucky, 
we should start showing a little bit more respect and compassion. Because one day, man, it's going to be you. In addition to that, the fact that we all age and that with age naturally comes health problems, that is something to rally behind. Age will come for you. Sickness will come for you. So fight for health justice now. Our obsession with beauty and youth blinds us from this reality. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, There is an evident harshness to the reality of poverty. Um, First off, the the poor are sick. They're sick in body. They're sick in spirit. It's, It's not only harsh on the body being poor, receiving little nourishment or being limited to eating cheap processed foods, which isn't healthy for you. Uh, being crammed into the ghettos and the projects and the street where there's little peace and privacy. Um, but the poor also work under the harshest of labor conditions. They have to work harder. And yes, this takes a toll, man. For example, the agricultural workers who are in the fields and under the sun all day that pick your food. The meat factory workers and the conditions that they work through, which we've already talked about. The men and the women who cut lawns all day. Um, those that work minimum wage jobs and even being in the military. Many people from poor backgrounds utilize military service as a way to gain financial mobility. All these conditions are subpar and harsh on the bodies of of the poor people in this country. They rest little because they have to work hard to survive and those that don't work are even worse off because then you start losing your shelter, start losing your food, your stability, and your body is now subject to the elements, to the streets, to the outdoors and homelessness. But this turmoil isn't limited to just the physical. Their minds are just as susceptible to ailment. The author says that the poor are actually more subject to mental illnesses than anyone else in society. And their specific issues are more severe than those of any other class in society. So not only is the rate of mental illnesses higher for the poor, but the severity and intensity of their illnesses are also more extreme. It's incredibly stressful living a life of poverty. Uh, it's not a fucking cakewalk like middle America or middle Americans imagine. Um, and this stress accumulates year after year after year, possibly for an individual's entire life if they were born into poverty. And with this, the chances of mental destabilization and mental disturbances begin to increase. For example, Malcolm X, uh, he wrote about growing up during the Depression. And uh, after his father died, his mother struggled to keep the family together. and She had to become the provider and the head of house, uh, which was a very unnatural role for a woman at the time. But it became too much for her. And eventually she had to be institutionalized and given quote-unquote help while the family was separated. This just shows how living a life of poverty and extreme poverty are extremely traumatic for an individual. I have another example of this. Uh, I went to San Francisco a while ago, and we're out by the wharf, and where everybody gets uh, seafood and goes on the ferries and stuff like that, all the tourists go there. Uh, But we left the area, before we left the area, I wanted to go use the restroom, so I walk over to the public one, and as I'm walking over, I see a homeless man, he's sitting there, Uh, he has his legs crossed, his back against the fence, and he's looking at the people eating across the block from us. So I'm walking to the restroom, and I, I see him to my side, and as I walked past him, you know, I remembered, oh shit, I have a couple bucks in my pocket. Um, but I really, really had a whiz. So I remember, you know, once I remember that, that I had some money for him, I quickly turned around to, to give it to him so I could rush to the restroom. I had to go. But I, I turned around a little too quickly. And from this man's peripherals, he wasn't even facing me, wasn't even looking at me. But from his peripherals, he saw me coming to him and he jumps up. 
he lifts his hands up like he's going to fight. And then his face is very distorted. Um, he was ready to get down. The simple act of me turning around a little quicker than usual alarmed the fuck out of him. And that's not normal. I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but I would say that that is a pretty clear indicator of trauma. That's an unnatural reaction. That's something that you'd expect from a soldier fresh from combat or a prisoner of war or someone who's been abducted or abused or something. The man, you know, he quickly apologized. He, he realized I, I wasn't trying to hurt him. He saw I was trying to give him some money, so he promptly apologized. He looked embarrassed, almost. Um, you can see a lot through his eyes, though. I, I felt truly terrible for inciting that reaction from him. <laughs> but the point from all this, though, is that poverty is traumatic. It's a traumatic experience to live a life of insecurity, instability, hunger, restlessness, violence, sickness, addiction, and all this while knowing that you are in the peripheral society, that you're the outcast, you're the reject. You're the member of the other America, not the affluent society. That you were condemned to powerlessness, voicelessness, and invisibility. I think it's hard for a lot of people to even imagine a life like this. I, it's difficult for me, um, which might be why so many people treat the members of the other America as if they're invisible, as if they're an inconvenience. But it's easy to assume that we are an affluent society, that everyone's okay and everything's sunshine and rainbows, well, you live in the suburbs. So, with the body and the mind under attack and distress, obviously, it wouldn't be very difficult for the spirit to become defeated as well, either, eventually. The author calls this uh, the twisted spirit. There is a, a pessimism connected to poverty. Just look at how we treat the people of the other America and how we raise our noses at them and we reject their presence. It's hard to remain positive when you're socially and politically forgotten. Here, I'll share this excerpt from the book uh, so you can, you can see how the human spirit can take some hits while living under poverty. These, uh, these excerpts, they come from social agencies reporting on the people of the other America, poor people, during a 1961 recession. The agency reports, quote, <clears throat> In family camp last July, leaders observed that children who came to the program without breakfast ate and drank the milk with great relish. The, mom, the, the mothers of the hungry children tried to cover up the reason for not serving breakfast at home. One mother, with a large family, told of going home to prepare a main meal of bread and spaghetti without meat. Another time, this mother brought a poor-looking cake with a peculiar icing for her contribution to the refreshments of a family life meeting. Her white and Negro neighbors who specialized in cake decorating rejected the cake. The staff members were the only ones who ate at the meeting. Here's another one. This one is from uh, Seattle during the recession. Uh, it says, quote, Personal depression and loss of personal value. One man in a housing project told us, I have been out of work for nine months. I feel like half a man. Here's the thing, guys. When someone reads or hears or sees stories like this, they're either outraged or not. You empathize with it or you don't. You want to help or you don't give a fuck. There is no in-between. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was reading this specific part of the book uh, and these specific excerpts, I felt my fucking stomach drop, man. Like, I, I can't describe it as anything other than just genuine sadness and the fullest level of empathy. How can you not? How can you not see the spirit being distorted like this when, you know, when you're out of work and saying that you feel like half a man? How can you not feel for the woman 
who attempts to bring something homemade to contribute and have it be rejected because it wasn't all polished up? How can you not feel for the kids who get to school and they're starving, wearing the same old clothes and shoes day after day? I mentioned last year that I truly believe that that there should be an element of spirituality present in politics. You shouldn't be in politics if you can't empathize, if you dismiss the most deprived, if you can't love yourself or the people around you. Words like love are absent from our political conversation, and it shows. It shows in our policies, in our system, our social acceptance and our social rejections. The term depression does not simply apply to the economy. The term depression applies to the human spirit. And right now, there are millions of people in this country who cannot be any more defeated, who cannot be any more deflated, and who, who cannot be any more forgotten unless death came for them himself. The slums, the ghetto, the streets, the projects, they all hammer away at an individual's spirit. It takes a fucking toll. I don't think one of these arenas can properly sustain a healthy human being. The very structure of our society is hostile and dismissive to the people of the other America. The American economy, society, and our general unconsciousness, I mean, excuse me, our general consciousness, are, are, they're all loveless. Apathy is rampant, which is why it's normal to drive to downtown LA and see entire encampments of homelessness, to see men and women suffering and literally dying on the streets of San Francisco. It's normal for us to see a woman on the street begging for money in the richest country in the history of the planet. It's normal to see kids starving at, at school and programs while the military devours $800 billion budgets yearly. And this normalization, it's a fucking problem to me. Before anything, there must first be outrage, there must first be anger, and empathy should direct that anger. The author says, very poetically, that a new determination and a new imagination are calling us. Our goal should not be charity or philanthropy or handouts, but our goal should be the social, economic, and political integration of the poor. Power, respect, and recognition have been denied for too long to too many people. People will ask, well, what can be done, man? What can we do? Shit, at this point, literally, Anything can be done. Anything is better than what we, are, what we are allowing right now. If the political will existed, the alleviation of the poor would have been diminished a very long time ago. Unfortunately, it doesn't though. So we must politically will it. If we want to eradicate poverty in America, we have to invest in the other America. Many of these people feel defeated, deflated, and fatalistic with their lives. Raise their spirit, and you can raise the whole. The author provides a ton of solutions or possibilities, and I'll, I'll just share them quickly. We've covered some of them before, but let's see. Well, first, how about starting by raising the minimum wage so that people can self-sustain themselves? And none of this $15 an hour shit. Give the people enough to live with dignity. The people's labor makes this country run, and it is the people's labor that makes millionaires, so give some fucking respect. The minimum wage should match the standard of living. If not, you are being exploited. All workers are essential workers. And even if you can't work, that does not mean that you should be thrown out of society. You're a fucking human being, goddammit. So get to fucking work, Joe Biden and the Democrats. Give the people what they need or take your ass out of here. And to the government, build those low-cost housing units that you promised uh, back in the 40s. That you, you promised to have done by 55 
Also, give the people guaranteed healthcare and end the for-profit healthcare industry. We all need healthcare justice, but the sick, the poor, the aged, the homeless, the traumatized, the abused, they need it more than anyone. This is something everyone, despite race, despite class, despite any of your fucking backgrounds, you can rally behind. Also, expand and transform education and provide free public higher education so everyone has the same opportunities without having to self-cripple, without having to hurt yourself, without having to go into debt. For shit's sake, people live, people's lives should not be predetermined based off of where they were born. People are born into wealth, fine. But people are also born into poverty through no fault of their own. And it's fucking savage to not see it that way. Speaking of seeing, let me, let me throw in my own little solution here. After reading this book, let's, let's change how we see or how we perceive the poor, the homeless, the addicts. Don't look at them pitifully. Don't look at them as those poor, poor people. Look at them as the victims of an American society and system that is fucking ruthless, that is apathetic. Look at them as part of your reason to fight. They can't. We spent all day talking about how socially and politically voiceless they are. But if you don't use your voice and your power, then you have relegated yourself to the disenfranchised as well. All right, guys. That's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you were able to get some good stuff from this episode, man. Even if you didn't, I hope you came in with an open mind and I, I hope you're leaving with a fucking open heart. People need it. There was a lot that we didn't get to cover, honestly, so please pick up the book whenever you can. He, he reveals some really valuable information and insights like, like how poverty can be manipulated, how black people were exploited for cheap labor, how surplus labor and cheap labor are bad for wages in general, and how the President's Civil Rights Commission of 1959 reported that suburban zoning laws intentionally keep out low-income housing and force the poor to remain where they are. There's a lot of great information in here related to alcoholism, mental illness, racism, and all kinds of troublesome social realities. It's an easy book to read. It's super light. It's definitely worth it. Um, Absolutely, I'll leave a link in the description so you guys can order the book for super cheap if you want to check it out. I will also leave a link for this episode's protest song recommendation. The song is by a group called The Lost Children of Babylon, and the song is called The Great Depression. It's a dope-ass hip-hop song. Listen to the lyrics. Obviously, the title and the content relate to this episode, so listen to the lyrics. Let me know what you think, man. Uh, I, I always want you guys to to listen to the protest song recommendation and apply it to the episode that you just listened to. So I really do hope you give it a listen. But uh, all right, man, that's all I got to say for today. Thanks for listening. Y'all be cool, man. Stay radical. Till next time. Peace. Poverty is one of the most urgent items on the agenda of modern life. That is nothing new about poverty. What is new, however, is that we have the resources to get rid of it. Why should there be hunger and privation in any land, in any city, at any table, when man has the resources and the scientific know-how to provide all mankind with the basic necessities of life? That is no deficit in human resources. The deficit is in human will. Just as nonviolence exposed the ugliness of racial injustice, so must the infection and sickness of poverty be exposed and healed.